0: We wrapped up our sermon series in the book of James, and we're actually starting a new series today based on our mission statement. So let's have God's Word open us up to the book of John. We're in the Gospel of John today, the first chapter, and we'll begin our reading in verse 35. John 1, verse 35 to 51. And when you're there, I'll ask that you be upstanding. I think the presider last week was so much better than me. I don't have his accent, but I picked up a few flavors. Let's be of upstanding for the reading of God's word. Again, this is John chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 35 all the way to 51. Please follow along as I read for us. This is the word of the Lord. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first followed his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus said to him, Before before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Will you join us as we continue in our worship to sing this song as our prayer?
1: Uh, Would you join me once more in prayer at this time? God, we uh, desire that you would speak to us. Uh, We know that you are the living God. Uh, You are not just the God of yesterday and the God of tomorrow, but you are the God of today. You are a living God who has given to us your spirit to illuminate your words for us this morning. And so, God, we ask that you would speak unto us, that you would speak truth to us, that you would speak grace to us, and that we, your people, would listen, that we would heed, that we would answer, that we would obey. Be with us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, around this time last year, we shared the vision and the mission statement of our church. Um, our vision statement is as follows: uh, "The vision of Eternal Life Mission Church is to see God's kingdom come and his will be done in our homes, communities and the world." It was exactly a year ago we shared this. We believe that this vision is not just exclusive to our church, but this is actually God's vision. All of human history. See, God's vision is to see heaven come down to earth. God's vision is to see heaven and earth become one. And of course, it begins with the Son of God who took on flesh and came down. And so, our vision as a church is God's vision. This is what we believe. J.I. Packer, I think, said it best or more, uh, most simply, when he said, the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. So this is our vision. This is where we want to be. This is where we want to go. And if that's the case, the next question is, how do we get there? Well, that's where our mission statement comes in. The mission statement, as we've also shared, uh, maybe we can read this together, okay? Um, The mission statement, um, let's read it together. The mission of Eternal Life Mission Church is to make disciples who live out the gospel in word and deed. This is our mission statement. How do we get to our vision? Well, we engage in the task of making disciples. So the vision statement answers the why. Why do we exist? And the mission statement answers the how. How are we going to fulfill our purpose? Now, earlier this year, we went through a sermon series on our vision statement. And if you forgot what that message or those messages were about, please go back and listen to them uh, through, our pod, uh, through our podcast or YouTube. Starting today, however, uh, we'll be starting a new series On our mission statement. And I'd like to begin by looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, I can already sense in some of you, you're thinking, well, this is actually not for me. Some of you are probably thinking, you know, I'm struggling to just be a Christian. How can I be a disciple? I'm not ready. Or others might be thinking, you know, I've been there, I've done that. I've done discipleship before, it wasn't really for me, I tried following Jesus, wasn't successful at it. Well, what if I were to tell you this morning that discipleship is not an option, that you cannot be a believer in Jesus without being a disciple of Jesus, You know, just so you know, uh, the word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament. Okay, 269 times the word disciple is used. The word Christian is used only three times. And in those three times, they're actually used to describe disciples. And so, the Bible's primary vocabulary to describe people who believe in Jesus, to describe those who are united to Jesus, is actually the word disciple. And so, this idea that we have in our minds that there's this contrast between being a disciple of Jesus versus being a Christian is actually a false contrast. There is, however, another contrast in the Bible, another C word, and that's the contrast between crowds and disciples. So, the Bible clearly presents there's a difference between the crowd and the disciples, but there isn't a difference between a disciple and a Christian. So, if we take this seriously, then the mission of our church is to make disciples of everyone who is here, See, the goal, the mission of our church is that everyone who is sitting here would be a disciple of Jesus who live out the gospel in word and deed. A disciple who live out the gospel, who believes in the gospel, who holds forth the gospel, not just on Sunday morning, but who lives it out every day in their words and in their actions. That's the mission of our church. So, Two questions I'd like to simply ask this morning as we look at the opening chapter of John. The two questions are first, what is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? What is the definition of a disciple? And second, should I even want to be a disciple? Am I motivated, persuaded to be a disciple? So, first, what is a disciple? If we look at today's passage, we find that Jesus is calling people to be his disciple, and I want you to notice the words that he uses to call them. Look with me at verse 39. He says, "'Come, and you will see.'" Verse 43, he says, "'Follow me.'" And verse 50, Jesus says, "'You will see greater things.'" See, the focus of discipleship, according to John 1, the focus here is on sight, seeing, and accompaniment, following. Discipleship begins with seeing Jesus and following Jesus. Friends, isn't this quite different from the more conventional understanding that we have of discipleship? When we hear the word discipleship, what do we think of Well, we often think of action, doing something. We think about training. We think about sacrifice. Somehow, all the bad things associated with an internship comes to mind when we hear the word discipleship. We think about no recognition, overutilization, and undercompensation. We think discipleship is about hard doing. But notice Jesus doesn't say, come, and do. What does he say? He says, come and see. See. You know, if you read uh, John chapter 1, this entire chapter, you'll see that there is this forceful emphasis on seeing Jesus. For John, the gospel and discipleship is actually about seeing Jesus. Look with me in verse 5. John describes Jesus as the light that shines in the darkness. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and we have seen His glory. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Even John the Baptist, when he bears witness about Jesus, what does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God. Or when Philip goes to Nathanael, he says, come, and you will see. See, the emphasis on discipleship is about seeing Jesus. Now, what does it mean to see Jesus? What does it mean when Jesus says, come, and you shall see? Well, there are three things. The first, when Jesus says, come, and see It means first to come and see Jesus for who he truly is. To see him for who he is, not who we sometimes want him to be, but to see him for who he really is. Friends, um, it is a real frustrating experience when people see you to be someone that you're not. For example, just because you did really well in elementary school, Your parents saw you to be some kind of genius. But you know, deep down inside, everyone does well in elementary school. We know when perception becomes expectation, that often leads to frustration. Or the very opposite, maybe you've made some mistakes in life. Maybe you failed once or twice. Maybe you're a bit slow. And now your friends and family, they see you in that light. They see you to be someone that you're really not. I think we all can resonate with the experience of being misunderstood, of people expecting us to be someone that we're not, of people seeing us to be someone that we're actually not. Now, personally speaking, I feel as though I've been misunderstood for the majority of my life. Maybe it's my lack of maturity or my lack of vulnerability or transparency. But I've often been mislabeled, mischaracterized, for better or for worse. Now, deep down inside, we want people to see us for who we truly are, not for who they think we are or who they want us to be. We want to be known for who we really are. Well, when Jesus says, come and see, come and see me, he's inviting us to see him for who he truly is. Not for what others say about him, but who he himself says about his own character, his own being. Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? How does John describe him? He tells us to see Jesus as the one through whom this world was made. In John 1, he says, Jesus, the Logos, the one through whom all things were made, do you see him? as the creator? Do you see him as the one who gives life to all? Do you see him as the one who is full of grace and truth? Do you see him as the lamb of God who takes away our sins? Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Second, the call to see Jesus, to come and see, is a call to behold him, a call to behold him not just to glance at him but to gaze at him if you look with me in verse 39 he says this to his disciples he says come and you will see so they came to where jesus was remaining this is in fact a very important word in the gospel of john to remain they came to where he was remaining and what did they do they remained with him that day for it was about the 10th hour whether it's Peter or Andrew, Philip or Nathaniel, disciples who come to see Jesus stay with Jesus. Friends, to be a disciple means to simply be with Jesus. To be a disciple means that you don't work for him, that you're not trying to impress him, but that you're simply with Jesus. Jesus. See, the calls are come and see, follow me. Jesus is talking about accompaniment. He's saying, where I go, I want you to come, and where I stay, I want you to stay. See, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means that you are with Jesus. Friends, this is not liberating. See, as Jesus is calling you to discipleship, He's not waiting to give to you a laundry list of things to do. He doesn't enroll you in some school or training program like the U.S. military. Instead, Jesus is calling you to do what? To remain with Him, to abide in Him, to be near Him, He's calling us to hear His voice. He's calling us to behold His glory. He's calling us to be so captivated by who He is, to gaze upon Him that when you see His glory and the world and the glory of this world, it is pale in comparison. As the hymn writer tells us, discipleship is turning your eyes upon Jesus. It's looking full in His wonderful face. So that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. So when Jesus says, come and see, what is He saying? He's saying, see me for who I really am. Second, He's saying, see me, behold me, look upon me, gaze upon me, remain with me, spend time with me. That's discipleship. And thirdly, come and see means to be transformed by Jesus, to be changed by Him. Seeing something glorious, seeing something truly beautiful, seeing something purely beautiful has a transforming effect, does it not? We climb mountaintops to gaze upon the vast lands. We go to the ocean to see the endless waters. We watch a powerful film or we gaze at a beautiful painting. You look at the child that you have just given birth to. And when you hold that child in your arms for the very first time, what does that sight do? It changes you. Seeing something beautiful has a life-altering effect. You cannot remain the same person. I recall a life-altering sight that I had about 10 years ago, uh, I was in central China at the time, and uh, there's this monument, it's called the Xi'an Steel. Um, It's a very unassuming monument, uh, but it was erected in 781 AD. Now, it looks very unassuming, just like any other statue, but when you go to it, you'll see that there's writing in both Syriac and Chinese. And the translation, um, if you read the inscription, um, it actually talks about Christian communities in China since the early 6th and 7th century. It talks about how Christianity came from Syria and the Middle East, and it entered into China with the gospel. Missionaries came into China during the Tang Dynasty. This is early, early on. This is only a few hundred years removed after Jesus. It came into China, and it was rather successful. There were Christian communities all over that area. And when I saw this monument that represented the gospel work in China, it was actually a life-altering experience for me. When I saw it, I was both humbled and healed. I was both humbled of the, the massive movement of the gospel and its effectiveness, its power, and I was also healed, encouraged that this movement must continue to go on. That sight changed my life. Friends, is this not precisely the reason why we travel? When we travel, we seek out monuments, we visit museums, we, look, or we seek after natural wonders, we look for landmarks, not just to experience beauty, but to what? to be transformed by beauty. And this is precisely what's happening. When Peter sees Jesus, he undergoes a transforming experience where Jesus gives to him a new name and a new identity. He says, Simon, son of John, you will now be called Cephas. This happens quite often in the Gospels when people meet Jesus, when they gaze upon Him and see Him for who He truly is, they are transformed by that encounter. Levi, you shall be called Matthew. Saul becomes known as Paul. Zacchaeus, the once tax collector, is now the advocate of justice and retribution. John, the writer of this Gospel, who is the son of thunder, becomes who? John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Friends, seeing Jesus has a transforming effect. His beauty, His glory, and His love will both humble you and it will heal you. You know, I think this is uh, quite helpful and informative for us, for Christians in their walk. You know, often I hear of Christians sharing with me and myself as well, sharing how we are struggling to change. We want to change, but we're struggling to change. You spent years fighting a particular sin to no avail, and you feel like giving up. You find that you are frustrated with yourself. You don't like the person that you've become, and you want to change. You want to change, but you don't know how to change. You would like to change, but you've often failed at changing. How can we change? How can we be transformed, brothers and sisters? It's to set our sight upon Jesus. It's to look to Him whose beauty will transform us. It's to draw near to God who is glorious and beautiful. You remember in the Old Testament, no one was allowed to see God? No one was allowed to see God. Why? Because God was so glorious His his face was so radiant, he was so powerful that anyone who saw God would immediately die right there on the spot. It's like standing five feet away from the sun and looking directly at it. No one was allowed to see God. The most pious person in the Old Testament, Moses, he was only allowed to see God's back. And even after he saw that, his face was glowing with this radiance. Friends, this is why John 1 tells us the Logos, the Son of God, took on flesh. That's why He became man, so that we can see Him. So that through Him we can see God the Father, all without the consequences of dying. But that we can see Him and be transformed by His glory and His majesty. What is a disciple? It's someone who sees Jesus for who He truly is. Someone who is with Jesus, someone who remains with him, someone who abides in him, someone who spends time with him, and thirdly, someone who is changed by Jesus. This is not radically different from our normal understanding of what discipleship is. As an internship, as hard work, as things we must do. No, for Jesus, discipleship is being with him, seeing him, and being changed by him. the next question I'd like to ask then is, should I even want to be a disciple? Maybe some of you here are thinking that. Do I even want to be a disciple of Jesus? Maybe you're unmotivated. Maybe you're afraid you don't have the bandwidth to follow Jesus. Maybe you're not persuaded that Jesus is actually really worth it. Well, there is another disciple in today's passage who might resonate with you, his name is Nathaniel. And this is what Nathaniel wrestles with. When Nathaniel hears about Jesus, and his friend tells him, Hey, come and see Jesus. Would you come and see him? Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, Nathaniel is a skeptic. He's probably well educated, he knows the scriptures, but he's also someone who has experienced disappointment. Perhaps he followed someone only to be let down. And Nathaniel, he's determined to never let that happen again. Right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Nazareth, no, I'm not going to follow this guy. Nathaniel is not impressed. When Jesus sees him, this is what he says. He says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This is best understood or translated. Jesus is saying, listen, there's this guy, Nathaniel. There's no guile in him. There's no deceit in him. There's no pretense in him. Nathaniel, he's after the real thing. Jesus doesn't dismiss Nathaniel. He doesn't dis- dismiss his skepticism or even his dis- his disregard. He says, "Nathaniel, you're the real thing. You're after something real. You want something authentic." And so Nathaniel says to Jesus, "How do you know me?" And Jesus says this. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And when Nathaniel hears this, he falls before Jesus and he utters, You are the king. You are the son of God. This encounter is quite revealing. See, Nathaniel doesn't come to believe and follow Jesus after Jesus answers all of his questions and all of his concerns. That's not what tips the scale for Nathaniel but what is it? What persuades Nathaniel to follow Jesus? What persuades Nathaniel to be his disciple? It's not that Jesus has all the answers, and he's answering every single one of them. What is it? It's a simple fact that he is known by Jesus, that he is seen by Jesus, and that persuades him. You know, I've met many skeptics over my life who've had all these questions about Jesus, asking, is He really God? What about this? What about that? And frankly, answering all of those questions don't tip the scale. But what is it that really persuades someone to follow Jesus is when they discover that they are known by God, that they are known and seen intimately by Him. Friends, if discipleship is seeing Jesus, that discipleship is predicated on the truth that you have first been known and seen by God. You see, discipleship is all about come and see, come and see Jesus for who He is. But all of that is predicated on the truth that you have first been seen and known by Him. Before you came to me, I saw you. Before you even laid your eyes upon me, I have known you. Do you remember the words of Hagar in Genesis? She says, I see the God who sees me. Friends, that is what discipleship looks like. It's not simply we pursuing Jesus to look for him, to find him, but it's ultimately discovering and finding Jesus who had his eyes upon us. See, ultimately, we don't want to follow a God who just has all the right answers. We want to follow a God who knows us personally. We don't want a God who just creates generally, but we want a God who creates intimately. But, you know, it doesn't end there. While that may be enough for Nicodemus, Jesus offers more. While Nicodemus, it's enough for Jesus to be his creator, Jesus says, you know what, I have more for you. Jesus says, you believe because I knew you. You believe because I have seen you, but you will see more. You will see even greater things than this. And Jesus says this, you will see heaven open up, and you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about that moment when He's lifted up on the cross, where heaven is opened up. The curtains of heaven are opened up, and heaven and earth finally become one. And Jesus' point is this, you worship me because I am your creator, but you will worship me when you discover that I am also your redeemer. See, the point of John 1 is to teach us that, John, that Jesus is not just the Logos, the creator of this world, but he's also the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And so the question that we have for us this morning, should I even want to follow Jesus? Should I even want to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, he is your creator. He is your creator who sees you and who knows you, but he is also your Redeemer who takes your sins upon himself and gives himself up. You know, earlier I shared how, you know, we have this deep longing of wanting to be known, of wanting to be truly known. We want to be known for who we really are, but at the same time, we want to be truly loved. We want to be truly known and we want to be truly loved. But sometimes we fear that if we are truly known, that we can't be truly loved. And if we're truly loved, there's this fear that we're not truly known. Well, when Jesus comes upon us, when he tells us, come, follow me. When he says, I have seen you, I have known you, I am both your creator and your redeemer. He is offering to you, I have truly known you, and I've truly loved you. Would you come and follow me? Let me just end with this point. You know, during uh, Jesus' time, uh, discipleship was actually a very common practice. Every prominent teacher, every respected leader, every successful business person had disciples around them. These disciples were very much like apprentices. They spent most of their time with their teacher, and they committed their entire lives to his teachings and his lifestyle. However, what's unique to Jesus' call to discipleship is that the teacher never first reached out to disciples. It was always the other way around. Depending on the person's level of popularity, people were always surrounding these important figures. There were crowds of young individuals wanting to get into the inner circles of these teachers, these successful business people, these influential men and women. I mean, imagine if the world's richest man, right, the world's most successful man, Elon Musk, all of a sudden announced, hey, I'm looking for disciples. I'm looking for people who are willing to follow me, to spend time with me, to eat with me, to be wherever I go. Imagine how many applicants he would get. Or if the pop singers, BTS, the boy band said, you know what, we want to train up young aspiring musicians we want to inspire these people to follow us around. We want, to, we want apprentices. Imagine the number of applicants that they would get. You see, becoming a disciple of someone was super competitive. You had to leave your home. You had to search that person out. You had to give your life up. You had to attempt to gain that person's attention, to gain that person's respect, to pass all sorts of tests before that person even acknowledges you before that person even gives you the nod of approval and brings you into his inner circle. Discipleship was competitive, it was rigorous, and it was often met with disappointment. I say this often. Discipleship was equivalent to receiving a sports scholarship to a top-tier university. That's what discipleship looked like during Jesus' time. But what do we find in today's passage? Do we find Jesus going to the cream of the crop Do we find Jesus taking resumes and applicants and say, I'm going to pick the best of the best of the best? No. We find Jesus going somewhat randomly to people. He goes to two people who belong to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, witnesses of Jesus, and these two people who are following John the Baptist says, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus now. He goes to Andrew, and then Andrew's brother, Peter. And then he goes to Bethsaida, where he meets Philip. And then from Philip to Nathanael. He meets these people who do not seek him out first, but Jesus goes to them and says, listen, you, follow me. Follow me. I have seen you, I have known you, and I have loved you. This is Jesus' call to discipleship. So the question is, do I even want to be a disciple of Jesus? Should I even desire it? Do I even have the motivation and the bandwidth to do so? And John, in his opening chapter, is telling us yes. Because he is your creator who has known you intimately, and he is your redeemer, the Lamb of God who has taken away your sins. Would you follow him? Would you follow him this morning? You know, I want to do something uh, a bit different today. Um, before I close the message, I want to share with you just five questions. And these are the five questions that we're going to look at uh, this Friday during CG. And you can find these questions in your bulletin, um, but I also want to read them out to us so that we can think about these questions to get ready um, and come prepared for Bible study this Friday. But these are the questions that I'd like to discuss. First, I think it'd be helpful if we share our discipleship journey Many of us have been a disciple of Jesus for some time. Many of us want to be a disciple. Many of us have failed at discipleship. But I think it's helpful if we start by sharing our discipleship journey. Second, Jesus tells us to follow him. And what are the thoughts or emotions that are evoked when you hear once again the words, follow me? When Jesus tells you, follow me, what do you feel? What thoughts are evoked? Third, how does Jesus radically change the traditional understanding of discipleship? Fourth, of the many called disciples in John 1, who do you most resonate with? Do you resonate with the two disciples of John the Baptist, or Philip, or the skeptic Nathaniel, or Peter? Who do you most resonate with? And finally, Jesus promises that we will see greater things. You will see greater things than these. What are, you, what are you currently seeking in your life now? And it's a time to share our prayer requests. Would you join me in prayer at this time?